Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling Joseph Cassara. Joseph holds degrees from Columbia University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop and was a writing fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, 2016 to 2017. In The House of Impossible Beauties, he dives into the Harlem ball scene in 1980s New York. The novel follows the House of Extravaganza, the first ever all-Latino house in the Harlem ball circuit. Inspired by the documentary Paris is Burning, Joseph Cassara's debut novel is transcendent, while remaining grounded by the harsh realities of its subject matter. So joining us right now, we have Joseph Cassara, author of The House of Impossible Beauties. And Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about the research process you did for the book? Sure. So um, besides watching the documentary about a hundred times... And and the documentary... The documentary Paris is Burning. Mm -hmm. um, I also tried to read first-person accounts of what it was like to go to the clubs at the time. So um, The Saint and Paradise Garage are two of the clubs that actually feature in the book and there were real places in New York that no longer exist so I, I couldn't mm-hmm. go there to check it out but I could like read about what those places looked like and what type of music was there and what the drink situation was like and mm-hmm. and try and root the scenes in very concrete details and so then I could set my own like imagination against these details in the setting. And that was one of the things I loved about the book because reading it, I was very aware the whole time that obviously you weren't alive during this time. Um, so you said you read first person accounts. Did you talk to anyone who was alive during that time, or was it just these first person accounts? It was just kind of first person accounts that I was like exploring different archives and. Mm-hmm. In a way, because these people were talking to whoever was documenting it on the page, it almost felt like I was reading an interview that that person gave. Perfect. And the same with the documentary. There are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of shots in the documentary that show mm-hmm. people kind of in action, but there's also moments where they're speaking to the camera. And so in that sense, it felt like I was viewing this oral history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a visual history, too, and with a visual the history, documentary. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, the novel's very... It paints a very vivid picture. Um, another thing I loved about it was um, the language that you use, which I feel like is so vital between um, the Latinx, um, LGBT, community slang, all those different things. Um, what was that like, really, using that language? Yeah, I, I wanted to write a book that felt very queer and very kind of like Puerto Rican New York. Mm-hmm. And so it felt essential to have the language kind of be the style of the book, right? the style and the form mm-hmm. coming together with the language. So um, it was actually a lot of fun to kind of explore this voice because it kind of has its own cadence. It has its own energy. It really it does. It's of, very, it jumps off the page. Yeah, I wanted it to like kind of sizzle like mm-hmm. off the page. And I love the work of Juno Diaz and I feel like his work, like his language does something similar. Mm. Were there any other books that you looked to for guidance besides his, either gay, non-gay? I love the way that Toni Morrison narrates her novels, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Justin Torres. His work is also really great. 
Great. I mean, there's plenty of writers I could list, but those are like <laughs> those are like three major writers. Awesome. Great. So back in June, I heard you talk at the American Library Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things you talked about there that really struck me was how queer bodies navigate space. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Oh, totally. I feel like as like queer people kind of growing up, we're constantly aware of how our bodies are walking around space sometimes because we need to be aware of like are we in danger is this like a place that is hostile to me like do I need to be aware of you know my own safety Um, but then we also are kind of I feel like the heteropatriarchy teaches us to kind of feel bad about the way that we have desire um, and the way that we act on those desires and Mm -hmm. so that's also like an awareness of our own bodies and so even if we're aware of that, it's still kind of deeply ingrained in our brains. And so each of these characters, I think, deals with it um, in a different way, sometimes in the same way, depending on the character. But it's interesting to to watch them walk down the street or interact with just another human being, whether it be a lover or a friend, and like constantly being aware of how their body is being negotiated. Mm. And there was um, an anecdote you talked about, um, about the subway, which, without giving too much away, does factor into the book. Could you tell us about that? Is this the Venus chapter? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I guess in that scene, she's kind of, she's reading Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal, and mm-hmm. she's kind of minding her own business, but still observing the people who are in the subway with her. And mm-hmm. the subway always fascinated me when I lived in New York, because it's this place where you are surrounded by people, and yet you kind of feel completely alone because everyone is in their own little bubble. Mm -hmm. And there's almost like this unspoken etiquette of like, you don't make eye contact with anyone, don't talk to anyone. And if you do break that etiquette, like people look at you like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so someone does that. I mean, I guess it's not a major plot point, so I could just, I'll talk about the scene, but like um, a man just kind of unzips his pants and like plops his genitalia on her book and no one says anything in the subway um, at all. Even though everyone is aware of it, and, and Venus kind of looks around, and, and she knows, like, how can you not see this thing happen? But no one says anything. And she feels so much rage, and I think there's this question of, are they not saying anything because they don't want to protect her safety because she identifies as a trans woman, mm-hmm. right? And then as soon as the man leaves... Um, the scene um, the woman next to her apologizes um, and asks her if she's okay as if like she couldn't say anything in the moment Mm -hmm. so it's you know it's a charged kind of scene Mm, definitely definitely Um, and you also talk a bit about how this novel is a family novel Mm -hmm. yeah so when I was writing it I wanted to combine these two narrative um, histories that resonated with me when I was a reader kind of growing up and just kind of discovering literature so there's Mm -hmm. that of like the queer narrative tradition from like you know Gore Vidal and James Baldwin up to the present and then there's like the the impulse for contemporary American writers to explore um, the American family and Mm -hmm. I wanted to to fuse those because I felt like there really weren't many novels or many stories um, that explored kind of um, maybe atypical family structures mm-hmm. in America, which seems like um, kind of a radical idea or, you know, a, 
in itself um, a political move. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we actually um, just had a book recently published that we also did a podcast on, um, Armistead Maupin's mm-hmm. memoir, Logical Family. And it feels like this concept of the logical family very much applies to this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like chosen families. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah totally. exactly. Mm-hmm. Leaving the biological and yeah. moving on to the logical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing I really loved about the book, um, there's this beautiful balance throughout between all these characters throwing shade at each other because that's just kind of the way they operate but then at the same time there's also this really beautiful support that they have for each other and I feel like for me that really came out prominently in a scene where Juanito goes to his first ball mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that about the shade but the but, shade the support how that how those two kind of mix together yeah I think whenever I think of like people who are throwing shade with people that they know it almost feels like it comes out of a place of love right like Mm -hmm. even when you're with your friends and you're kind of teasing each other and you you know um, where people's limits are when you know when if you're very close with them and so shade in that sense comes out of place of love but shade can also be used as like a defense mechanism if um, you feel like the straight world is like attacking you, then you you do a read, right? And mm-hmm. then you throw the shade. You find you know, the flaw, and then you throw it back at the person with the shade. Um, in the scene that you're talking about, where Juanito is debuting at the ball, um, Pepper, who's a mother of a different house, the house of La Beja, kind of takes Juanito in, and doesn't particularly throw shade. Oh, I guess there is the one line where she says, like, you know, like, you're great for an extravaganza, mm-hmm. but, like, even though everyone wishes they were a Well, I think, I think that scene's a really good example of how, in spite of there being so much shade, there's also, you know, she sees him in this moment of need, and there's just this overwhelming support. Yeah. And I think that, well, the support comes from, like, people who are marginalized might see someone who is vulnerable and the the instinct is to just take them in and take care of them especially when when you recognize that you have a lot in common with them Mm -hmm. that's great fantastic um another very strange um dichotomy that the book presents is this balance between sex work using sex to you know get money get by and the intimacy that these characters are looking for with each other yeah um yeah, unfortunately, the realities of the of the situation were like they had to, you know, engage in sex work in order to kind of survive in New York at the time. And as I was writing the book, I wondered how that affected their intimate lives. Like, mm-hmm. how do you separate um, like sex work versus like intimate sex right and how does that affect the characters and the way that they're able to um, interact with each other and then a third part that also complicates that is Mm -hmm. like sometimes the characters might have a history right where they associate sex with trauma right and so these three things working together how does that affect them and so I was really interested in slowing down those scenes and really looking at like the body language Mm-hmm. And like very minor details that reveal kind of a lot about the psyche of the character at that moment. Mm. The body language, in what way? Um, like I think of one sex scene where Juanito and Daniel are having sex and uh, like under the table, and Juanito like moves his head and doesn't look at Daniel, mm-hmm. but Daniel is aware that this is happening, right? And, and Juanito closes his eyes, and so there's this kind of like negotiation that they're both doing in that Mm -hmm. moment and then 
uh, well, like if you read the book, then you know about Juanito's past and and how um, that knowledge is overlapped in that scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of, one of the other things that struck me about all these characters was how young they all are. Yeah. They're all, who's, we only get, I think towards the end of the novel, they're only how old at the end? They're in, so Juanito and Daniel are the youngest in in the beginning, so they're still kind of the youngest at the end. Mm. And the youngest being? I think when Juanito and Daniel enter, they're like 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is incredibly young to be. Which is very young. Yeah, very young. Though I feel like kids who grow up in New York tend to mature Mm -hmm. um, faster, um, just because, you know, if you're walking down the street without a guardian, you have to be kind of aware of your surroundings at all times. And they're kind of aware of the fact that, like, the world can be a mean place, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you might not, if you're a 14-year-old growing up in, like, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. might not you might not see those realities as much as you would like if you grew up in the Bronx mm-hmm. at fourteen, and so I think that's definitely a case in the novel. Mm-hmm. So by the time they're in their early twenties, they're like, you know, they know how to navigate They've seen the so streets. Much. Yeah, mm-hmm. nothing phases them. Yeah, which seems like a particularly New York kind of attitude, where it's like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, like nothing shocks me. Hardened New Yorker. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you vomited on someone's face in the subway. Like <laughs> I've seen two people do that at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> do you um? Do you think their queerness is also a factor in how they have to mature so quickly? Oh yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. because um, they're just m- more in danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Who was your favorite character to write about? It shifted as I was writing the novel. Like uh, at times, Dorian Corey, um, like her voice was really refreshing because it was an older, more cynical voice. But then when I was like deeply in like Venus's chapter and I was writing like her kind of shady or funny lines, like mm-hmm. that was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the like shade or any of the humorous lines kind of were not pre-planned. They just mm, kind of came kind of out in the moment. Yeah, and so they were sh- surprising to me, and also like because they were surprising, they were just fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there were also some scenes where that were just so sad to write. And I wouldn't say that it was my favorite to write those, but in those moments, I felt incredibly close to the characters mm-hmm. because I had to like really exercise empathy with them in order to like handle the scene mm-hmm. well yeah it's very it's extremely up and down novel i felt that yeah. the whole time i was reading him yeah. laughing at some points and then by the time i finished i was just like Ugh. yeah and i feel like in a tragedy humor i feel like i read a lot of books that are just kind of tragic without humor mm-hmm. and the humor sometimes can enhance the tragedy because it disarms the reader if they're laughing, they don't know to expect like a bomb going off on the next page because they've just laughed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you laugh with a character, you're also kind of charmed by them. And so if something happens to them later, it can be devastating. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so obviously a lot of this novel is set um, in a very specific time, given a very specific crisis. Um, how much of this do you think could in theory take place today? That's really interesting. I think that it's still, unfortunately, very relevant, but in different ways. So, mm-hmm. 
because the novel kind of deals with AIDS and the effect of like of AIDS, um, HIV disproportionately affects people of color and people living in poverty and queer people. And like the other day I was thinking, well, like PrEP exists today, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a pill, it's called Truvada. If you take it every day, you basically won't contract HIV. Mm-hmm. A couple of people have, but for the most part, it's very, very effective. Um, but if you don't have health insurance, that pill costs $12,000 a year. And so the people and the communities that need access to that medication the most, who could really profit from it the most, mm-hmm. um, don't have access to it. And who are those people? For the most part, they are queer, they are people of color, they live in urban centers, they live in poverty, and they might be sex workers, right? They are the characters these, in these the These are story. the characters of the novel, right? So, like, if those characters were alive today, like, th- the unfortunate realities of the book might still be relevant like they may you know like they won't it won't be a situation where there's a character in the book who is diagnosed with hiv before azt was approved and so there was no medication at that time Mm -hmm. right now there is medication but it's still you know it's still like a matter of resources and like like we have the resources not everyone is able to get them it's a matter of the access yeah totally Mm -hmm. yeah yeah How do you get your inspiration? I feel like a lot of my inspiration comes from listening to the way people talk and like just overhearing funny things that people say or heartbreaking things that I hear um, in passing. And so a lot of the novel, the novel is told in like a very conversational um, voice and a lot of the dialogue was a lot of fun to write. So for example, I could be walking down the street and I'll hear one line in a conversation and then I'll just immediately kind of think, well, like, what what is the story behind that that these two people are talking about? And so I find a lot of inspiration that way. Mm-hmm. Going back to um, your inspiration, I just occurred, it just occurred to me, um, as much as we talked about Paris is Burning in the beginning, mm-hmm. um, we didn't really go into the documentary too much. So mm-hmm. for people who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us about yeah. um, that documentary and how that influenced you. Yeah, the documentary was filmed, I guess, the late 80s or mid to Mm -hmm. late 80s, and it was released, I think, in 1990. So the documentary kind of shows the world of the ball scene at the time, and it um, there are interviews with different people and shows you um, what they were like when they were walking around the Christopher Street piers or like as they were taking part in the balls. And so what the balls were... Um, well, first, I guess I have to start with houses. So there were different mm. houses, right? There were different families of, like, runaway gay people. There would be a proxy mother, there would be a proxy father, and then the children of the house. So this novel is about the house of Extravaganza, but there was the house of Chanel, St. Laurent, um, La Beja. There were a lot. And the house of Extravaganza was a real house, correct? They were a real house, yes. Mm. And so um, the houses were kind of... Um, means of survival for the people in the house because they would support each other and um, they would live together oftentimes and then they would go to the balls and they would kind of compete against the other houses there would be different categories so one of the categories might be like executive realness and they would all dress like executives right Mm -hmm. and um, or what they thought an executive would look like so it was um, sometimes a little exaggerated and the the person who exemplified that category category the best won the trophy and brought it home for their house. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so then people who won a lot of trophies became like legendary. They were called legends. So they were also legendary mothers of the house. So Angel, who's a character in the book, was a legendary mother because she won um, her categories a lot. She was the legendary mother of the house of Extravaganza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the documentary itself kind of interviews um, various mothers of the house and kind of explains some of the lingo that they use, like throwing shade or reading. Like, what is a read? What, is it, what does it mean to read someone? And then it, Dorian Corey, who's a drag queen, kind of explains a definition. And then you see a scene where someone is doing a read on the street. And so it's a great documentary to watch to kind of understand um, what it was like to live um, in the houses at the time or to take part in the balls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I will say it is on Netflix. So if you have time, yeah. I would definitely recommend going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then how did you discover the documentary and what about it really drove you to write this book? I think I was 17 when I watched it for the first time. Um, and I just had a friend who like mentioned it in conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? What? I thought it was like, t- took place in Paris. It was mm-hmm. like, Paris never burned. Didn't it? <laughs> um, and then he was like, oh, like, no, no, like, we're going to watch this movie, like, right now. So we watched the movie, and it was just kind of amazing. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, it really resonated with me, and it was a movie that I came back to every so often, like every six months or every year, and every time I watched it, I felt like I noticed something different, mm-hmm. um, a different aspect to the, to the documentary, a different nuance, or as I gained more life experience or was experiencing different things at moments in my life, um, certain aspects of the movie would uh, be magnified versus mm-hmm. others. Yeah. So you're very familiar with this documentary. Yes. Yeah. Even before I started writing the book, I was very familiar with it. And then as I was writing it, I had to constantly return to it. And there, there are some moments in the documentary that make its way into the book. Mm-hmm. Like there's one scene where like, there's a boy and he's just kind of like this and there's a mm-hmm. fan throwing styrofoam nuggets down and like that image works its way into the book mm-hmm. which is a very beautiful image in of itself Thanks. yeah yeah, yeah. Like it's raining, like raining styrofoam. Yeah, raining styrofoam <laughs> at the Elks Lodge at like four a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. and I think he's also screaming at them, like, "Why y'all gagging? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you gagging?" As he's like being fabulous in front of like a wind, <laughs> like projected wind. It's <laughs> great. So, could you talk a little bit about the dynamic at the time between those who lived openly gay lives and those who didn't? Oh. Um... Well, I don't know from experience because I wasn't born in the '80s, so I don't I don't know exactly. Um, maybe people who are closeted versus not, but um, I imagine that it was at least for people in this community, like coming out had like consequences. You know, a lot of the kids were thrown out of their houses if they mm-hmm. came out and. That's why these houses like had to exist, right? These proxy families had to form because you, the consequence of being kicked out of your house is being homeless as mm-hmm. a teenager in New York City. Like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just comes down to a question of like privilege also. Like, mm-hmm. There were people who did come out of the closet and didn't have to face those consequences. Um, and they just kind of lived more privileged lives, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's not the case for the people in the book. Which is really interesting, because um, it makes me think about these characters in the book. Um, there's nobody really that we're dealing with who is closeted or mm-hmm. halfway out. Everybody is 
completely out. And it's yeah. almost this thing where, you know, you're either in or you're out. And there's yeah. no in-between for these characters. Yeah, there's there really are no closeted characters. I guess Venus falls in love with um, an older man um, who... It, it appears would be, like, kind of closeted, questionable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give away any, like, plot points or, like, surprises, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, we like to end all of our podcasts by asking our guests who their favorite teacher is. Mm-hmm. So, Joseph, who is your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher, I'd have to say, is Mrs. Howman. Mm-hmm. She was my preschool teacher. Aww. And <laughs> the reason why I say this is because I think that she... Um, developed, helped develop my love of learning and my love of reading at such an early age. Mm-hmm. And um, in my preschool, we were kind of the way that it was run was like you could each pick what activity you wanted to do and you would spend your time doing that activity. And I, now looking back on it, think that that kind of affected the way that I just approach creative work mm-hmm. and, and how I approach my own writing too like I will go and sit in a corner and write and I think that I can trace that back to those days so mm-hmm. I'd have to say that I'm very thankful to her for oh. kind of instilling that in me that's great well if she's mm-hmm. listening yeah um, she's still teaching I know that. is she yeah she is oh my goodness well you have to yeah. have send this to her yeah, have I you will. sent her a copy of the book I have not oh you'll have I to do have that to. yeah <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.